Howdy, y'all. You're listening to the Managing Up Show. I'm Travis Swicegood, and I am joined by Brandon Hayes and Nick Means. Hi there, hey, everybody. Uh, so, Nick, this is your this is your first uh, first show with us. So, welcome to the podcast, and we're glad you're here. And why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, you and uh, your background and what you're up to? So, most recently, I've been a VP of engineering at a couple of startups. I'm actually starting next week as a senior engineering manager at GitHub. So that's the short version of my background. I've been in software for, I don't know, nearly 15 years now, most of it in uh, Ruby and Rails. That's the one with Git. Yeah, it has, it has Git and that, that cat logo thing. That's, that's the one. And don't forget, they're also a really good subversion host. <laughs> Are they actually? I, I, yeah. believe, I believe that's still in production, yeah. It, it was an April Fool's joke that you all of the, uh, the, your Git repositories were also available as subversion, but it actually worked. <laughs> <laughs> uh maybe i'll do that just to be contrarian like subversion <laughs> is now the hipster uh version control system it's we, the vinyl we all miss just, merging subversion branches yeah <laughs> yeah we had uh oh, what do we geez. call it i'd have Flash a check-in hacks. buddy uh i was a relatively new engineer using subversion and they made me have a check-in buddy where they're like okay we need to read each line of code because once this is merged to trunk we're we're hosed if you do this wrong yeah i've spent more than my share of weeks on uh essentially merge manager duty uh, where I'd rotate off of the team and just be the one responsible for keeping feature branches in sync. At, at, it was not fun, not fun. Uh, that's actually probably a pretty good segue into our topic because I think I'm pretty sure that is the role. The, the question that we wanted to talk about today is what what are the roles of a VP of engineering or a CTO and what do those mean at differently sized organizations and why is there so many uh, interpretations of that? And I would say merge manager is probably... I don't know. That's CTO stuff, right? <laughs> it, to delegate, if possible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> In a small enough company, it definitely is. Yeah, I think that's one of the key things is like the size of the company. If you're talking a, a, even a 20 or 30 person company, the CTO is probably still slinging code from time to time um, and seeing some of the processes through, like making sure that uh, merges stay current. But if you're at a company that's got 2,000 engineers, the CTO probably hasn't seen a terminal in, in years. A terminal? I haven't heard that name in years. <laughs> so, Nick, you were the VP of engineering at your, your last place. Yeah. And I'm curious to know, obviously, these interpretations are different at different companies, but I'm really interested in your take on this. So at, at Move, the biggest distinction between my role and the CTO's role is the CTO did most of the externally facing activities. So interfacing with the board, interfacing with investors, uh, whereas internal management and leadership of the team was largely my responsibility. But we were small enough, I didn't have any managers under me, so I was doing team lead and engineering manager and VP of engineering all kind of rolled into one. Okay. Um, so, well, help. can you break those roles out a little bit? If you're doing that all roll into one, did you get a sense for when you were doing one role or the other, or did it all just kind of blend together? Um, I mean, so when you're doing one-on-ones and a lot of direct people management stuff, that's pretty obviously the engineering manager role. Uh, when you're spending time on process things and helping dial in process, that seems more VP engineering-ish to me, especially mm -hmm. on a small team. And then tech lead on the rare occasions that I got pulled into a technical conversation and had something of value to say. Uh, but I, I did my best to stay out of those conversations because I wasn't in the code every day. Basically to that, if you're in the code, 
trying to influence the quality of the code or the output of the code, you're probably in tech lead or team lead territory. Uh, if you're dealing with process, you're more in VP of engineering territory. If you're dealing with individual people, you're more in manager territory. Uh, and then CTO is something else entirely, like dealing with the board of directors or trying to convince big companies to partner with you or sell them why your technology is so great. Yeah, I think that's a good way of explaining it. I mean, it goes to the, the classical explanation, right, is that the CTO leads strategy and the VP of engineering leads execution. That, that makes that makes some sense. Or at least that's that's the one that I've heard more than anything else. Yeah, I've seen that one a lot as well. Um, and sometimes that that turns into you have a VP of engineering that has pretty much all of engineering reporting into them. And then a CTO who maybe the VP of engineering reports to and a handful of architects uh, report to. So they're kind of the 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 keepers of the technical vision um, and not really the process and the day to day and the operational part of it. Um, I definitely, the difference between uh, strategy um, and technical direction and the day-to-day operations are the two big differences uh, that I see between a CTO and a VP. Although sometimes you'll have um, a CTO brought in, uh, I've seen this as well, where that's the, they're the technology operating officer, essentially. So they're Mm -hmm. very involved in the operations and delivery and uh, things like that. Um, generally, you don't have that and a VP of engineering. If you have a very operations-focused CTO, uh, the CTO position, as I've seen it evolve, uh, you start out where you're doing a little bit of everything, and then as it evolves, it's often the case that uh, the the technical co-founder or CTO is not really the person that needs to, to be in, put in place to lead uh, a 10, 20, 50-person engineering team. So you bring in somebody who's really good at that day-to-day operational stuff to take that over. Um, and free up the CTO to do the, the technical work that they're capable of. Um, in some cases, that's interfacing with the board. Um, I know some CTOs who interface very little with the board, but might be the person that goes out and talks to, to customers a lot, and they're that technical advisor on sales calls and things like that, um, and the person that the team looks to for technical guidance. How should this be implemented? What should we be using here? Uh, what infrastructure should we be targeting? Things like that. Uh, where a VP of engineering, if you're getting into those conversations, you're starting to kind of blur the lines of where your responsibilities are. And I think that's a a good explanation. And they have their various roles where I I can almost see a VP of engineering and a CTO being peers, because one of them is primarily responsible for the, uh, the technological direction, and the other one is responsible for the organization processes and culture. And those are almost peer responsibilities. But some, mm-hmm. you know, in a lot of companies, you might have the VP of engineering reporting to the CTO, even though their roles are almost at a peer level. The question I would have is, why does putting definitions around this matter? I, I think it really comes down to how your organization treats those two roles. Mm-hmm. Um, because sometimes the, the CTO uh, is more of a figurehead than actually involved in conversations. And it looks, starts to look a lot more like a, a chief architect role um, rather than uh, what some people would traditionally, outside of uh, engineering or technology positions, would think of as a CTO. Because most people see CTO, oh, that's the person who runs the ship. Well, not normally, um, unless it's a, a company where you don't have that layer of management that's involved in uh, the process. Um, generally in a VP of engineering role or SVP or EVP, depending on the uh, the size and structure of your company, um, that's a role that there's a pretty clear line from that up to like a COO type role because execution and operations are your key strength. Yeah, I mean, that's that's sort of along the same lines as what I was thinking. I think 
all of these jobs really are a spectrum of potential responsibilities. And we can discuss them in the aggregate sense until the sun goes down tonight and not get to a great conclusion. But what really matters is spending the time when you're in those roles to figure out where the lines of responsibility are. And if you're not in one of those roles in an organization, to understand where those lines in your organization are so you know who to go to for what. I think that's the key thing in having these uh, defined, uh, being able to say, okay, who do I go f- go to for what things? Um, and when a CTO tells me something versus the VP versus the director, uh, what's the what's informing that decision? What role are they playing uh, when we have those conversations? And I think especially in uh, startups, which have a tendency uh, to grow very organically. I think we've talked about this before on the podcast, Brandon, mm-hmm. um, the, as things grow organically, maybe those lines aren't clearly defined. And at a certain size, you can't continue to grow that way. You have to say, okay, this is your role. This is your responsibility. Um, this is this other person's role and their responsibility and how everybody interacts and what everybody is, is there to do so that you're not overlapping responsibility so that you're providing clear, uh, direction, uh, and guidance to the team, um, and things like that. That's where the defining, uh, the various roles and how they split and, and where they split, uh, can be really, really helpful. And I think that definition follows the same sort of trajectory as an engineering team's process. You know, as the team gets bigger, you need more process to help everybody understand what needs to happen to get code out to production. And so as as you add that process and that level of formal understanding, you add some formal definition around other things in the organization as well. I think that's a really, uh, that's a really good point. Like that as the organization grows and scales, the need for somebody who's more oriented toward that process in order to keep the machine running. This actually is a conversation I've had very recently with, with, uh, with a VP of engineering where, uh, it, it was, there was a realization that as the, the team could ship easily early on without a lot of process and scaling like they could achieve results without a ton of process. And I think people don't realize that maintaining the ability to deliver results as you scale is extremely difficult. Mm -hmm. And so the processes have to be put in place to allow uh, results to continue to be achieved at any meaningful rate. Um, Because without that, it it just becomes so tangled there. uh, It's this classic network effect. As you add nodes, you have an exponential number of edges in your graph that start appearing and cause information to sort of seize and responsibility to sort of seize. And so these processes and responsibilities of making them clearer. And, And it's also a way to sleep at night. You know, it's hard for me to go to sleep at night wondering if there's a part of my job that I'm not aware of that's going to sneak up on me and whack me over the head the next day because I didn't do it. Was I supposed to create from scratch an entire new hiring process? Um, or is that the responsibility of our VP of engineering? And like, well, I can go and have that conversation with VP of engineering with the understanding that, hey, this is your responsibility and I can help. But it's not necessarily something that as an engineering manager is my first and foremost, like when you look at the list of 10 things that I'm responsible for, uh, you know, creating, maintaining and improving our hiring process isn't first on the list. But I can, it's something I can help with, but that's the exception rather than the rule. And it's something that I, I can help with, but I don't necessarily own. Um, is actually really freeing and really helpful as a manager. It frees me up to focus on implementing that process and, and incrementally improving it uh, rather than feeling like I have to you know, carry the whole world on my back and carry the entire engineering team on my back. And there's also going to be different things that are important to different organizations, right? Because like you said, there's no way we can keep track of all of the things that we, we should be keeping track of because there's so many of them. 
And so figuring out which of those things matter for the results of your organization and focusing on those things and letting some of the other things slide is really important as as you look at what these various jobs are. Yeah, and I think constantly reevaluating that um, as an organization, it, it, this is just applying uh, agile development methodology to uh uh, job process definition. Um, you should always be looking at it and say, okay, do we, have we defined this correctly? Um, and is everybody in the, the role with the responsibility that they're best at? How can they best contribute? Um, it's a pretty common thing to see uh, early stage startups have uh, the first or second or third engineering hire turn into a director of engineering and then a VP of engineering and then a CTO or something like that. Uh, without actually thinking about it outside the terms of, well, this is the person who's been here the longest. They have the most knowledge. Let's give them a promotion. Um, and not really evaluating, is this the right person for the job? Are there other ways other than a promotion to show the, uh, to, to reward the contribution that this person is making and give them the responsibilities that they want? Um, all too often, and this is true at all levels of, of management and engineering, all too often people end up in that role just by virtue of having been there the longest um, and get accidentally become a, uh, a manager. Um, and that leads to a lot of burnout. If you end up in a role that you don't like, um, that isn't playing to your strengths, that isn't what you actually signed up or want to do, um, that's just going to increase the burnout. And uh, it's going to be a lot more likely that that person ends up uh, moving out of the company. Um, if there's not a way for that, I've, I've been through, uh, uh, processes creating, uh, career ladders explicitly for this and making sure that there were places, uh, not only, uh, alongside, uh, you know, people management in technical leadership, like architecture, but also having, um, IC roles, uh, individual contributor roles for people to move into. If all they want to do is continue to hack on the project that's providing a lot of value. And they're the person that knows that. And they're the one in the company that can do the most with that free that person up. If you're, if you're at the size where this is a possibility, free that person up and just say, okay, go to town. Like, you know, where this needs to go. Um, keep us abreast of where you're going with it. Uh, make sure that you're moving it in the right direction, but continue to, to, uh, churn away on this. Um, I've seen a lot of developers who end up in say a, a principal architect role, um, where they don't want to be the voice of technology to the rest of the company. Doing things like talking to the users of their product is the least interesting thing to them. But if they could just spend a week without having to talk to anybody and rewrite a section of the application, that's their ideal week. Um, and they're the types of people generally who could do that week in one, or that work in one week where it would take an entire team, three, four, five sprints to do that same amount of work. And so being able to make sure that you have those places, I think that, that, that comes in as one of the, the key responsibilities um, of a VP um, or in the absence of a VP, a CTO, to make sure that they're thinking about, okay, everybody that's on the team it, am I providing them the opportunities where they can contribute uh, the most that they're they're capable of uh, to the the outcome we're working towards? I think that's a really good point. And if you're if you are the basically the person that is in the role responsible for making sure that that exists, uh, and you have an engineering team of more than say ten engineers, and you don't have a ladder that promotes people beyond senior, and and kind of 
like leads them to believe that there is no track for them past that. Um, that's actually probably one of the most important things you can do. Like you need to really move that up your priority list. Uh, it will shock you how, how valuable that activity winds up being. Um, and it will often protect you from having a crappy VP of engineering or CTO that got, uh, sort of inappropriately rewarded. You know, that's like the bad kind of coupling. You're coupling a, a reward for a job well done with a, a responsibility that actually has really difficult job requirements that they they may not be qualified for and usually not any accountability for it either. Yeah, I think that's the a, a classic chicken and egg problem though because you need that strong technical leadership in most organizations to be able to create that. Um, and if you're talking about an organization where all of the co-founders um, lean uh, more sales or business or operations focused and you bring in an early maybe it is a co-founder, but they're not somebody that, that is interested in being that VP of engineering or CTO role. Um, you could end up in a situation where th there's nobody there to create that ladder. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, it might be a good place for, uh, this is this is where open source thinking, I've been pushing for this even earlier this week at a, a talk I gave at a local meetup. Uh, I'm really pushing for more open source thinking around this where uh, you see, you have more stuff that you could like pull off the shelf. Just like when you're starting, uh, you're bootstrapping a small company, you're not going to architect an entire framework to ship a web application. Um, but it's a really powerful enabler that somebody who is architecture minded, an entire team of people created something like Ruby on Rails or Django or, uh, you know, Ember.js or something like that to say, here, here's everything that you need to get something done and be productive. Uh, that style of thinking, I would love to see more of that in management. And I think you will in the, in the coming years. I certainly plan to open source some of the stuff we're doing uh, yeah, where I, I'm at right now. I remember the first time that I saw a career ladder, it was the career ladder that Camille Fournier essentially open sourced out of Rent the Runway. Mm -hmm. That, that I, was the first one. I have that up I, on a, yep, I have that up right now. It's a great resource. Well, in uh, true manager fashion, um, I am double booked right now. So I'm going to have to drop off for a little bit. Absolutely. We are on the manager schedule. Good luck to you, sir. See you. See you, Travis. <laughs> it is true. There's like the, the, uh, when we were engineers, it's like, okay, well you have four hour block for, for some programming and then I'll take an hour block and we'll record a podcast. And as a manager, you try to like fit these scheduling, these podcasts It's very different because you have to try to like line up multiple, uh, calendars, uh, against each other. It's, uh, it's a different skill set. I think a lot of people that come from an engineering background are often really surprised at what the the level of the amount of time you spend in Google Calendar syncing things up is a little bit shocking. Yeah, it's it's a ton. And, and that's that's one of the points I wanted to make as a follow on to what Travis was just saying. I'm very much of the school that the shift from writing software to leading people is a career change, far more of a change than we often give it credit for being. And it, it, it is a struggle to to go from having direct productivity in code to having indirect productivity through helping other people because that does come in the form of meetings and managing Google Calendar. Yeah, I have a, a story about this. Um, at a company I worked at, I don't know, almost 10 years ago, uh, it was a little startup that hired some technology people uh, out of state in the state that I was in. It was a New York-based startup, hired some technology people, and then became surprisingly successful surprisingly quickly and grew and grew and grew. And here is this, you know, first engineer, there was one person that was an engineer and a, a, like a, a, like a mid to senior engineer and a junior engineer. And as the company grew, they had to hurry and hire more people. And the founders cashed out and left. They sold the company for hundreds of millions of dollars, cashed out and left and said, my gift to you for your hard work here is you're now the CTO and you're now the director of QA. 
uh, and then walked away from the company. And they didn't realize that wasn't a gift to anybody. And it wound up hamstringing this company for years afterwards. And so, you know, here's my poor boss who just wanted to code and just wanted to solve problems, but couldn't refuse a gift of that magnitude. Instead of saying, hey, here's a crap ton of equity or cash from this like multi-hundred million dollar sale. So this is what I mean by like an inappropriate reward. An appropriate reward for generating that much value is a chunk of the value, not the, you know, the promise of uh, increased responsibility that they, that nobody there really understands. And it was an honest mistake and I'm sure it was well-intentioned, but it was uh, ultimately like a really inappropriate, like coupling of those things and ultimately wound up getting uh, one or both of, at least one, if not both of those people fired eventually. And in the meantime, it was very painful for everybody else trying to shore up those shortcomings uh, and the gaps in their ability to do the job that of a CTO of now a, you know, 75 person engineering organization in a multi, you know, in a billion dollar company. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's it's the Peter Principle promotion, the idea that everybody gets promoted to their level of incompetence. But on startup steroids, so yeah. now you have people that are promoted like six to- six levels past their level of competence, and their level, and it and it makes everybody miserable. The company's miserable. The person in that role is miserable. And nobody's happy. Yeah, it was it was a really frustrating experience, and I felt really bad for this guy who was a he was a really good guy, but it was so clear he was underwater, but he couldn't let anybody know he was underwater, so he had to act really confident about everything. It was just a really vicious cycle, and ultimately, yeah, I mean, he from what I hear, he's learned a lot since then, and he's you know leading engineering teams with a bit more confidence now, which is great to hear. Um, but you know, he needed a decade of experience underneath him to do the job that he suddenly found himself in. And so, what Travis was saying earlier, I really like, which means put your engineering ladder in place that shows this person that there is another track for you here. Uh, create alternate strategies for rewarding people that don't require that you push them into these leadership roles. It's re- I actually think it's really dangerous if you're like a five-person company and you take somebody and you put them in a CTO role and you don't clearly define that CTO role as different from the CTO role of a of the company when it's a 50-person company. You know, your your job before you find product market fit and after as a CTO is very different. I would say for a VP of engineering probably stays largely the same. Um, I don't know. I, what do you think about that? Because you've been in you've been in pre product market fit companies and post product market fit com- companies in those kinds of roles. Yeah, but I didn't I didn't weather the transition in that role. Um, I've never been through finding product market fit as a VPE. So I mean, I think the 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 key thing that changes once you find product market fit is your velocity can pick up a little bit. So process is more important. Having a defined backlog is more important. Whereas before product market fit, I think there's often a lot of negotiation between the VP of engineering and and whoever's leading product to figure out what experiments we're going to run and how we're going to run them to find product market fit and how much we should be investing from a code perspective in those things. Is there a need for both a CTO and a VP of engineering in a company that is like a pre-product market fit startup? I feel like there's usually not. I, I feel like up to a certain scale, whoever's leading engineering can largely wear both of those hats, no matter what their title is. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was uh, in a company in that role, uh, that we called the role head of engineering, and there was no CTO. Uh, the company started growing, and the need for CTO definitely started becoming apparent because it became impossible for me to mediate 
the discussions about technology and the direction, like you're laying the foundations for, for technology and you start having to mediate disagreements between senior and capable people uh, and pick a, you know, like basically the chief architect type position or part of the CTO role that I definitely didn't feel, uh, I, I made it very clear that I didn't want that role and I didn't feel capable of doing that. And uh, I love that there are people out there that would want to do that. And I, I, that role became more and more apparent that we needed it, I think but not until we were significantly down the road in our second or third round of financing. And that gets back to the need for something like a career ladder. I mean, as you're looking at an organization and figuring out as a new engineer where you might want your career to go, just having a map to even look at to see the range of possibilities to, so that so that your, your thinking is not artificially limited, so that you understand that there are places to go that don't involve taking on significant leadership responsibilities. Yeah. I mean, that was, that was one of the key ideas of radical candor for me, the idea of, of rock stars and superstars. And I was and just going to bring that up. <laughs> yep. I, I don't like her words for those because they're so overloaded in our industry. Yep. Um, but the, to, to summarize what she says in the book, the distinction is that a rock star is somebody who really likes the role that they're in and does an amazing job at it and can continue to grow in that role. Whereas a superstar is somebody who's looking to grow their responsibility in, in leadership, either leading technically or leading people in, in engineering circles. Yeah, because I was going to ask the question, how do you manage? I think this, this may answer it. I just want to kind of scratch at this a little bit. How do you manage people of varying levels of ambition? Because there are people who have very little in, you know, growth trajectory or ambition, but are great performers. They want to do their job really well. And there are people that are just wildly ambitious, sometimes decoupled from their abilities in any way, like just blindly ambitious. And, and you know, that requires a different type of management. Um, and they see the CTO role or they see the VP of engineering role and they feel like they're gunning for it. Um, uh, and, and you were saying the way that uh, an engineering ladder can kind of help manage uh, potentially, I don't know, like I see how a, an engineering ladder would manage the wildly ambitious person and say, hold on, here are the requirements at each of these stages. And here's why you can't jump three levels. I know you want to be a CTO or president of the company or president of the United States or whatever, but you're not qualified. Um, that setting aside any political stuff, I don't think political office and, and qualifications match up any, anymore anyway. But for, you know, you can at least in, in locally in your environment, have a list of qualifications that say, this is, this is what the results look like. And this is what you put in to, to do, to get to this next stage on this ladder. And you can usually have a sense of about how long that's going to take. If you work really hard at it, this is still going to take 18 months, two years, whatever, uh, to get to this next stage. Um, I'm curious about if you have thoughts on what you do with people that, that look at that and don't have that same kind of ambition and may look at an engineering ladder and, and shrug their shoulders. I mean, I think at the end of the day, there's still going to be financial growth that happens in the industry and you have to find a way to continue rewarding people who are incentivized by money. Some people aren't. Some people just want to ship code. Mm -hmm. um, but that's where having that strong individual contributor, collaborative contributor track, whatever you want to call it, is, mm -hmm. is very important. That's a good point too. And some of it is a little bit defensive too, because you have somebody who's happily shipping code for you and you don't progress them financially in any way. Uh, at, and your assumption is that they're satisfied. Uh, somebody else could come along and unsatisfy them and pay them more. So yeah. like, you know, that person is potentially vulnerable if you're not, if you're not on some sort of a track. And so maybe having a financial compensation structure that kind of mirrors your your engineering ladder, but doesn't require that somebody 
is you know constantly reaching upward in order to to increase the amount of money they pull out of the value equation because they are providing more value to the company as as they add experience and get more context and they become the go-to person for this uh, it's just not as obvious and this is coming back to the book it's much harder to reward and encourage the, the you know the rock star the steady people uh, that that are steadily providing value than the people who are provide have a more obvious growth trajectory it's much easier in in our in any of these systems to reward those people. And so making sure that you're taking care of the people who aren't gunning for, you know, principal engineer or, or chief architect or uh, any of the roles that have a higher level of responsibility. Yeah. And that's another thing I like about the thought of open sourcing this stuff is if you're an engineer in a smaller startup, then you need to be able to see the engineering ladder of a large company to understand how that bifurcates for a larger organization because you're not going to see that at a 10-person startup. If they have a career ladder at all, it's going to be fairly small. Have you designed and built career ladders for places that you worked in the past? I started on one for Move and then work got in the way and didn't wasn't able to get it done. But I spent a lot of time reading them. There are a lot of them out there and a lot of them, uh, some of the newer ones, Camille's is good. Uh, I feel like, uh, was that Rent the Runway? That was the Rent the Runway one? Yeah, that was that one. Uh, I feel like Lara Hogan posted something. I was, I was going to bring hers up next, yeah. Um, it's in a Git repository, and she did it for Kickstarter. Yep. Yeah, so those are kind of the only two I have as a frame of reference. And then we have the one at the company I'm at now, Afinipe, uh, that that my boss came up with before I started here and hadn't really yet put it into practice. And as I've started putting it into practice, I'm finding a lot of success with it. And it's very clearly modeled after kind of a confluence of the old style of engineering ladders that would be at a place that you might, you know, work out for 30 years, uh, where it has clearly defined levels and requirements in a grid fashion or whatever. But the values that are represented in there are, are you focused on customers? Uh, do you mentor? Uh, do you, you know, are, do you learn and grow? And do you, you know, and do you provide direct product value? Um, and grow in all of those areas. And as you do more of those things, um, those are kind of the functional requirements of the role uh, that that you know you're able to generate positive results. And I think that ladder that I have here is like a, a great model that I haven't actually seen out there in the world yet. I bet lots of companies have something privately locked up in a you know under lock and key like this. Um, but synthesizing, I think everybody uh, can and should be doing this. The dangerous thing that f- it feels dangerous to do something like that because you know you're just making it up. This is the dangerous and painful thing about being a manager, a VP of engineering, or CTO, uh, is you you secretly know, hey, I just made all this stuff up, and I'm actually measuring people and holding them accountable and promoting and even sometimes firing people against these things that, at least in part, I made up. And that feels real. It's very hard to have a high level of confidence in that. Um, and I think part of what it means to grow in leadership is to be able to do that confidently, even though you know that it may be imperfect, choosing to be, you know, be present for that imperfection, improve it over time. Because uh, the, uh, the easy thing to do is to sort of draw the line and then back off of it. Like, oh, I'm, we're going to draw the line here. This is what we think this is. But I'm going to kind of pull some things behind the scenes and go with my gut and or qualify it in some way and let people off the hook. Um it's really hard to, uh, in our industry where we're all kind of like inventing what our job does once we show up. 
I think that includes any VP of engineering or CTO. Oh, absolutely. A huge portion of your job is you're just kind of making it up as you go along. I think that's true in surprisingly large sized companies, maybe even GitHub. I don't know. You haven't started there yet. We'll see. I, I think though that that engineering, the craft of engineering management is largely an iterative process like anything else in software. I, I think you have to work through it, try things, see what works. When you fail, admit that you failed and try something different. So what what's so cool about like not GitHub necessarily the company, but the ideas behind it is that uh, what GitHub did for our industry is they kind of popularized the idea of open source and made it more socially acceptable to say, let's, why don't we share a solution? Why don't we build on a shared solution instead of each invent our own thing and lock it up? As more people start putting out their interpretations, that's a very, it's actually a very brave thing. Mm -hmm. And so if there happen to be any people listening that feel like they have opinions about what these roles are, it actually would be pretty brave and pretty cool to put the, those opinions out there in public, let people go ahead and assail them because they become data for people who are trying to survey across the landscape and synthesize that information into what it might mean for them in their situation. And they can pattern match and go, well, these three companies think that a CTO does this, but they're large companies. And these three companies are smaller and they think a CTO does that. Um, they're, you know, they're, they're there raising money. Like you're not going to be doing that as a CTO in, you know, a very large, well, I don't know. Actually, I have no idea. <laughs> it might still be true at a very large organization, but it's probably quite a different job. Well, and that's, that's an important thing to call out as well is when you build one of these career ladders, it needs to go all the way to the top. It needs to have your job in there and have the definition of your job in there so that people that's a understand. great point understand what's expected of you. Yep. Nobody wants to do that, right? Everybody no. wants to everybody wants accountability until it's like the flashlights pointed at them. But putting that out in the, out there in a way that that lets your team say, "Brandon, you're not doing that great a job. It says on this that you uh that you do this." That's a scary thing to do, I think. And and so uh putting that in a way that lets your team publicly hold you accountable for your role is actually another one of those things that you can do that's a little bit brave. It is. And, and that's one of the hard things about doing this job is where do you get feedback? I mean, because you, you have a manager, but largely they're, they're in charge of several different managers if you're in a management role. And they're not spending a ton of time watching you manage your team. So they might have skip levels every now and again. But the people that you get the best feedback on how you're doing as a manager from are the people that you're managing. So yeah. Putting That's that, really true. Putting that out there of what you expect of yourself and then building a culture of safety where they know that they're, they're safe bringing critical and constructive feedback to you about that is, is really important to your growth as a manager. That's a really good point. And it kind of reminds me of another thing from Radical Candor, which it, it, Kim Scott talks about uh, asking people how you can improve and not letting them off the hook and sitting there in that uncomfortable moment where you know they they may or may not even have anything for you and it's so easy to let they go you know any and I've done this and anytime you ask somebody hey you know I'd love to get some feedback from you on you know ways I could potentially do my job better for you and uh they're like no I'm good you know like no 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 you don't understand I actually need something from you and we're going to kind of sit here until you can you, we've got something and I've done that and it's been, you know, medium effective. Sometimes I've gotten great results. Sometimes people are like, no, seriously, I've got nothing. And it's not like there's nothing that you can improve. There's obviously something you can, but it's sort of, you know, people's mind will blank out in that moment. 
And so having a list of your responsibilities there to talk to, just like you do with them, I don't sit there and go, are you doing a good job as an engineer on the team? I go through the list of requirements and say, here's, you know, here's where I see room for improvement. Being able to flip that and ask for that feedback in that same context would actually be really useful. Yeah, it's it's like it's like any other conversation. The give it a little bit of structure and it makes it much easier to have the conversation. And 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 I bet I've I've never experienced this. I'm I'm curious to try it now as well. But I'm betting that having that laid out gives them a bit more permission to to give you that feedback. I bet it does because you're saying no, no, no. I'm asking for feedback about this specific thing now. This specific thing. It's like taking your car in somewhere and they're saying, you know, hey, is there anything wrong with it? And then you drive away off the lot and you realize, oh, there was that rattling or whatever. And if somebody had a list that said, how are your brakes? Are there any rattles? You're like, oh, actually, there is a rattle. When you go through it in a checklist style, it's much less personal. It's much less about like, are you judging me as a person? It is, am I performing my tasks for you in the way that uh, that is most beneficial? So if I take anything away from this conversation, it's going to be, I'm going to try to structure a feedback session based on uh, when, the next time I ask for feedback like this, I'm going to actually have to come in with a list of here's what I am trying to do for you. You know, let's run down this list really quickly and see if there's some an area that we could potentially improve on or if something else comes up and we'll add it to the list. Yeah, I'm very, I'm very curious to try that now too. I think it'll be an interesting experiment. Yeah, and I, I mean, that's a great way to build the trust that you were talking about. Like, do they trust that that feedback will be received well? Do they trust that that feedback, and you mentioned this might be a way to actually build it. Um, and I think it would. Yeah, absolutely. And it gives them it gives them a lower stakes way to, you know, dip their toe in the water and say something a little bit critical and see how you respond. Oh, I will fly off the handle. I will just <laughs> lose it. Yeah. I, well, on that note, I think that's a really great place to kind of tie this conversation off. Understanding why we would bother defining the roles in leadership and those areas of responsibility are important because they actually help us understand what we need in order to be successful in our roles instead of trying to like solve all the, all the problems for the entire organization. Uh, that's a really useful, a useful exercise. There's more stuff, you know, we've talked about structuring these conversations. I would love to talk with you about how you do one-on-ones, performance reviews, all of these things are things that in future topics I'd love to cover with you and Travis. And I, I think you'll have a lot of stuff to add. So I'm really, I'm really glad you're here. I'm sad Travis didn't make it back. Uh, I guess his meetings are meetings and uh, that happens. But for anybody listening, thank you so much for joining us for this conversation. If you enjoy the podcast, please share it with people. I am Brandon Hayes. I am Te Viking on Twitter, T-E-H Viking. Yeah, I'm, I'm Nick Means. I'm N Means on Twitter. That's a good one. That's a better one. That doesn't have any typos in it. <laughs> it's really easy to remember. Yeah. And if people want to come work for you, they could just push a code repository to GitHub that says hire me, Nick Means. <laughs> That's a possibility. I will be hiring a manager sometime soon. Awesome. All right. Thanks again, everybody, for joining us. And we will see you next time. Bye, everybody.